If you have a Bible with you, please open it to Romans chapter 16. If you don't have a Bible with you, you are more than welcome to borrow one in the pocket of the pew in front of you, and you can find Romans 16 in the passage that we will soon be reading from on page 894 of that Bible. We have been going through the book of Romans now for well over a year. There was a break in there. We took a break to study through the minor prophets, but for the most part, pretty, pretty solidly going through the Bible's book of Romans for the better part of a year. This is what some believe is the greatest theological work that any human hand has penned. We would add to that that the Holy Spirit had a pretty significant role in that, but nevertheless, it's kind of hard to disagree that it is the theological work in Scripture. No other book lays bare the themes of the gospel and the centrality of the work of Jesus Christ quite the way the book of Romans does. Paul takes us from the lows of our depravity and how little we can do before God and how everyone, Jew and Gentile, has been depraved by sin and brought toward death. And he has taken us to those lows that he might show us the heights of justification by faith, telling us and informing us that this justification by faith isn't a new theme in God's kingdom, but it is the very thing that he has always saved people by, trusting in his word. What's more, He spoke to us of this radical new obedience that comes upon us. No longer enslaved to our sin, we can now walk as servants and slaves to Jesus Christ, doing his will and living in obedience. And what's more, that the gift of salvation is not just a gift to be experienced at the end of time, but it is a gift now, even as he gives us the Holy Spirit, to walk in right living with. He is sovereign in all of his ways, including our election and salvation in all of its parts. And he has spoken to us about how we are to live and walk in this world, no longer being conformed to the world, but being transformed by the renewal of our minds that we begin to look more Christ-like in all of our lives, whether that is loving the brothers and sisters that you have here at Crossway or whether it is loving your enemies. Everything that we are to do is to be transformed so that the strong are no longer strong to emphasize their oppression and their belittling of those who are weak, but rather they have been made strong by the Lord that they might serve those who are weak. If you understand rightly the book of Romans, it is an incredibly radical book. It calls on us to forsake worldly power, glory, and might, the things that seem to be the most sure in the world. Those who have money and those who have power and those who have arms are the ones who are strong. It calls on us to forsake these things, to pursue the good even of our enemies and especially other believers. And what's more, even to suffer so that our enemies might hear the word of hope in the gospel. Paul, in chapter 16, is bringing his letter to a close. And I think it is a fitting close. He is going to show his great love and concern and hope for the Romans. Let us go to that chapter now and hear how Paul closes out this letter. Let us begin by reading from verse 1 in chapter 16. There Paul writes, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church at Sencray, that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints, and help her in whatever she may need from you, for she has been a patron of many, and of myself as well. Greet Prisca and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risked their necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well. 
Greet also the church in their house. Greet my beloved Apennatus, who was the first convert to Christ in Asia. Greet Mary, who has worked hard for you. Greet Andronicus and Junia, my kinsmen and fellow prisoners. They are well known to the apostles, and they were in Christ before me. Greet Empilatus, my beloved in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, my fellow worker, our fellow worker in Christ, and my beloved Stachys. Greet Apelles, who is approved in Christ. Greet those who belong to the family of Aristobulus. Greet my kinsman Herodian. Greet those in the Lord who belong to the family of Narcissus. Greet those workers in the Lord, Trophena and Trophosa. Greet the beloved Persis, who has worked hard in the Lord. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord. Also his mother, who has been a mother to me as well. Greet Asyncritus, Phlegon, Hermes, Petrobus, Hermas, and the brothers who are with them. Greet Philologus, Julia, Nerus, and his sister, and Olympus, and all the saints who are with them. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ greet you. I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. For your obedience is known to all, so that I rejoice over you. But I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Timothy, my fellow worker, greets you. So do Lucius and Jason and Sassipater, my kinsmen. I, Tertius, who wrote this letter, greet you in the Lord. Gaius, who is host to me and to the whole church, greets you. Erastus, the city treasurer, and our brother Quartus greet you. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations, according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith to the only wise God, be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Romans 16 is sort of a final concluding chapter. The first thing I want to point out to you is the welcome that Paul gives to people. Paul's welcome. You'll notice as we read through there, the majority of Romans chapter 16 is simply a long list of people that Paul seemed to want to say hi to. Greet this person, greet this person, greet this person. Some of these are very clearly closely connected to Paul. He begins by talking about Phoebe, who obviously has his recommendation and, and commemoration. He wants her to be taken care of when they get there. When he says, help her and whatever she might need from you, almost as assuredly talking about having a place for her to stay, to live, provide food for her as she does this. She is, after all, although Paul has many comrades with him, she is the one who is taking the letter there. She is the one who is carrying it, and so she deserves special attention to be not only picked out, but to be helped. Other people he gives commendations to and says that they have been of great help to them, and others he frankly simply greets. Paul might not know everybody in person, but he is calling them out. He is wanting to greet them because he has heard something about them and wants them to know that he is welcoming them. In a letter like this, it's not terribly surprising that you have these sort of greetings. 
This is the way that a lot of letters work. When you're writing to one person in particular, but you want to say hi to other people that they know, you do this. My dad does this to me today. When we're texting back and forth, he says, hey, tell the kids I love them. And I say, I will. And then I never actually do. Your grandfather loves you. So, and it's not just Paul who's doing this. Later on, we have the people who are with him writing uh, to the, the Romans, and they're saying, hey, Timothy's greeting you. These other people are greeting you. By the way, Tertius there, it doesn't mean that he is the author of the letter. It means literally that he penned the letter. He would be what we call an amanuensis, basically a secretary, and Paul is telling him what to write, and he is the one who is writing it down. So there are all these, these greetings which are terribly normal, but it seems a bit awkward when we remember that this is actually in the Word of God, that of all the things that the Spirit could have had him write, it could have just been, hey, Greet the people I know, support the workers, peace out. But Paul doesn't say that. Instead, he takes time to pick on every single person that he can possibly mention here, and he does a lot of it. Why keep this for us? Is this good for us? Well, I I certainly think that it is. Most of the people who are here have this sort of strong connection to Paul, but not all do. But everyone who is here is here because they've got some connection to the gospel. Whether they're helping out Paul personally supports him taking the gospel. Some people have put their necks out for him, as he says. Some people are patrons to him, beneficiaries to him, that they have, they've helped him, they've supported him, given him money so that the preaching of the gospel might go out. Some people support Paul not simply by supporting him, but by preaching the gospel themselves, by taking the gospel to other places. All of these people have helped support the gospel and by that have supported Paul. The truly important bit of all this is simply there's names in here that are different and varied. There are names that come from all over the place, names that come from all kinds of different backgrounds. No distinction anymore holds in the service of God. Ethnic realities are overcome in the gospel. Class realities are overcome in the gospel. Gender realities are overcome in the gospel. They are not wiped away. They are not ignored, but they are indeed overcome. If you go through this list, you know, they might all sound very, some of them are names you might have heard of other people being named, but most of them are very odd. They're strange. We might hear them and think, I don't know anybody who's named that way. We might not be able to identify them as Greek or Roman or Jewish, but people in the first century would have known Certain names, that's a Roman name. Certain names, those are Greek people. And Paul even identifies people who were Jewish. He says, my fellow kinsmen. It doesn't mean that they're Christian, but probably that they're Jews. Each one now can serve God and can help the service of God go forward, can help promote the gospel. The good news is no longer just for Jewish people, but it is for all people, and therefore it is the responsibility of all to walk it forward. There are people here from the upper echelons of society, and there are servants and slaves mentioned in the same list. Paul doesn't mention the rich because they're rich and powerful and he wants to get on their good side because he mentions the poor in the same breath and sometimes before and even putting them as more important than others. They are here because they serve the Lord in the gospel. There are men and there are women, many, many women helping Paul in the service of the Lord. And this one little slice from the life of Paul, a very normal, natural thing for him to write we find that there is truly a rich diversity of people in the New Testament church, even here just in Rome. But I want to stress something to you, that this diversity that we find here doesn't just happen when the gospel goes out. 
Because you, you hear people when we talk about the difficulties that we have, especially in America when it comes to this particular hour, which is, as has long been, the most segregated hour in the history of the world when it comes to people living together. Uh, we have African Americans with their churches and white people with their churches. This is not something that, that a lot of people like, and so we say, hey, this has got to be fixed. And one of the things that people promote as, as the solution is, listen, we just, we just got to preach the gospel, Okay. So if we just preach the gospel, then racial reconciliation and racial healing is just sort of going to happen. Let me tell you, that's not the case. It should happen with the gospel. But you'll notice in this book alone how hard Paul has been working to reconcile the differences of Jew and Gentile. He didn't just say, well, you guys are all Christians, just get along. Because he knew that there were cultural realities that would be difficult for them to overcome. He spent two chapters telling the strong, who are likely the Gentile people, how they are supposed to live so that they can get along with the Jewish people in their midst. It's not an easy thing. It took a lot of plotting. It took a lot of prodding. It took a lot of work. You can go to the book of Corinth. And Paul writes to the the churches in Corinth. And there are people there who seem to be wealthy. And there are people there who seem to be poor. And there are divisions all over that church. And Paul doesn't say, listen, all we need to do is hear the gospel again. He says, no, you need to understand an implication of the gospel. You need to walk in line with the gospel. It takes more than just the preaching of the gospel. It takes people being told how they ought to live in line with the gospel. And not just the letter to the Romans and the letters to the Corinthians, but also Paul writes this nice little book to Philemon to say, hey, the slave who ran away, you are to receive him back as a brother in the Lord. And Paul puts a lot of pressure on Philemon to understand that. The gospel doesn't just make these things happen as though it magically overcomes the natural dispositions of sinful human beings. It can do that, and at times it does do that. But at other times, we ought to know what the implications of the gospel are and work hard to overcome them. You'll notice as well the prominence of women in here. So many women are being named. This has led at least one person that I know of who, who I would recommend in almost any other setting. He is, his name is Michael Bird. Uh, love him. He, he is um, sort of funny. He tries too hard to be funny at times, but uh, I... I have a soft spot in my heart for people who do that. Um, but he, he, he reads Romans 16, and he says, Romans 16 is the chapter, out of all the other places he could have gone, it's the chapter that convinced me to be an egalitarian, that convinced him that women should be elders and pastors and preachers as well. He does this for a couple of reasons. One of the chief ones is the name there who comes in verse 7 of Junia, which is almost certainly a woman, and he, he says that they are, Adronicus and Junia, are well-known to the apostles. Now, that phrase can be read in a couple of different ways. It could be that they are inside the circle of apostles, and that among all of the apostles of which they are a group, they are well-known, or they are outside the circle of apostles and just happen to be well-known by the people who are apostles. And there's one Greek word that you can take either way. So some people come in here and they, they look at these lists and they, they listen to it and they come away with, um, I think, wrong interpretations of what these sorts of lists mean. I don't think that they're right when they think that Junia is actually an apostle. I don't think that they're right when they 
think that Phoebe is somehow given over this letter so that she can take it and teach it and instruct people and have authority over the people in Rome. I don't think that that's what Phoebe's job is at all. However, I would say this. Even though I think that Paul would maintain that women cannot be elders and women cannot be pastors, although those are, I'm not trying to differentiate between the two, they're the same function, it clearly doesn't mean that they don't have a place in the working and the ministry of the gospel and that they cannot do much to bring the gospel to many. I don't know how many people on this list are actually elders. He's not commemorating the, the teachers that are in place. These are people who have traveled to Rome, and he said, these people have helped. They're doing fine work in the Lord, the work that everybody can do, supporting the mission of the church, supporting taking the word to other people, helping to not only supply Phoebe with a place to live, but supporting those who are there, supporting the poor in Rome who are there gathered as a church. They are helping the church to grow, helping the church to thrive. They're doing everything they can to promote the word of God among them. That's enough. See what it takes to get your name written in Scripture? Have you ever thought about that? These people have their names written forever in the Word of God. It will never go away. How do you get your name in there? Now, you can cheat like some people and get named after somebody who's already in the Bible, right? For the rest of us, we're out of luck. Good job, Mark. You snuck in there. But the rest of us are completely and utterly out of luck, right? But you get... You get the writing of names down in Scripture. We're going to be studying Exodus here in a couple of weeks. You, you have Pharaoh, the most important man in the world at the time, being mentioned by title only. Pharaoh has a name. The Bible does everything it can to not mention who it is. Not because it doesn't historically know who that Pharaoh is, but because it doesn't want to record its name, his name. Yet when it comes to Shifra and Pua, the midwives, who allow the Hebrew women to give birth to their children and do not kill them. God remembers their names. It's not because of your background. It's not because of any of the things that make you important according to the world, but your desire to be of aid and help to the kingdom of God. Paul's welcome here of people. His seeking to greet everyone that he can possibly think of tells us that God uses all kinds of people. He can use each and every person in here. There is no one in here that God cannot use to further the kingdom of God, that God cannot use to promote the gospel, from the young to the old, from the rich to the poor. God can use you, so be of service to him. Secondly, let's talk about Paul's warning Let's talk about Paul's warning. In verse 17, he's going to appeal for them to watch out for people who cause divisions. I would say that there's a, a difficulty in these verses. It's just difficult to figure out how we're actually to put this thing into action. So when Paul writes this to the Romans, the Romans have some knowledge of Paul. But at the very least, they've got a huge list of people who Paul just mentioned who seem to know Paul and his thoughts pretty well. They, they can go to him and say, well, what do you think Paul would say about this? Or what do you think Paul would say about that? And, and even if they can't answer, they can always just write a letter with a quick question because we have 
in First and Second Corinthians, the Corinthians actually asking Paul questions and Paul responding with answers. So this happens in the early church. It'd be kind of nice. We would have a theological question. We could write it out, send it off to Paul, and Paul would get back to us in a couple of months. It'd take a long time. If you think the U.S. Postal Service is a little slow, you haven't seen the ancient Greek Postal Service, but nevertheless, it would get back to you. And so you can ask those questions, well, is this an issue that's important enough to divide over? And Paul could answer that for us. But we can't do those things. The question becomes, how do we know if someone's creating divisions? Or rather, enforcing right distinctions between people? After all, notice what verse 17 says. He says, You are to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrines that you have been taught. Avoid them. Another way of reading that would be, you are to divide yourself from people who divide people, right? So it's not that making divisions is wrong, but you've got to make the right divisions. And there's sometimes where on one side, every little bit of grumbling becomes a way for people to cause division. And so when they grumble against the leaders of the church or they complain about something, they immediately say, well, you're just grumbling to to cause divisions. You're just trying to split the body in two or or to to cause some sort of difficulty within the body of the church. And sometimes that might be right. It's not always true. In Acts chapter 6, the Hellenistic widows brought forward a complaint that was a legitimate complaint that the church had to deal with. Some people on the other side think that unity is so important that every other doctrine of the church is subsidiary to it. So that the only thing that truly matters is that we're together, which completely nullifies everything and leaves you with nothing to actually be unified in. So where do we fall? How are we supposed to handle these things? On a large scale, it's almost impossible to do. We have natural distinctions. After all, we cannot plant churches with Anglican people. Anglicans have a way of viewing a hierarchy within their church structure. They, they believe in baptizing infants, and we couldn't plant a church with them and work out something that we would be happy with and they would be happy with as far as how that church authority was going to be run and who was going to get baptized. We just couldn't do it. But even if we could get around those things, it's just the world is a really large place. How are we supposed to check up on every single pastor, on every single thing they teach to know if we fall in line with them? There are issues, but I think that those are mostly solved when we realize that Paul isn't asking the Romans to watch out for divisions between them and Corinth, or between them and Antioch, or between them and Ephesus. What he's warning them about is being divided amongst themselves. So they've got house churches all over the place, but generally speaking, the Romans know who the Romans are. They know the Roman Christians that dwell in Rome, and he is saying, amongst your own people, You cannot be divided. The things that I've written you about, the things that you know about, the things that you have been instructed in, notice it's not just what I've written, but what you have been taught. You are to hold on to those things. When it comes to matters of opinion, like he says back in chapter 14, you're not here to quarrel over those things. Those things can be let go. But what I've written to you, you are to hold on to them, and you are not to be divided over those things. It's unfortunate that Paul doesn't just then help the Romans out by giving them a list of things to say, these are things to not be divided over. These are things to be divided over. I think Paul knows that such a list would be rubbish because we would come up with new divisions and new distinctions and we would want to know where those distinctions and those divisions need to be broken up. So Paul just sort of generally says, well, I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. 
to be wise because you're infused with Scripture, guided by the Spirit's work throughout church history and even in your own soul and amongst the people of God so that you can walk wisely in the world and see where those things fall. But you are also to be ignorant of that which is evil or to be innocent of it. You'll notice that there's a purpose to what these people do. Paul says that they're not here to serve Christ, but they're here to serve their own appetites. Incredibly important for us is this, at the end of verse 18, by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. Please understand, divisions rarely come up in a church because someone's telling you stuff you don't like. Divisions come up in a church because someone has the gall to stand up and tell you exactly what you want to hear. They're being flattered. They're having smooth talk placed before them. They're garnering people to themselves by telling them exactly what they want to hear. Be aware that sometimes you're going to hear things that you like. We're going to preach that Jesus Christ is an incredibly awesome Savior who died for your sins and was resurrected for your justification. And and that is smooth talk and that is flattery because that is the very thing that you want to hear. I understand that. Not all of it is wrong. But you have to double check yourself. When you hear things that you want to hear, all the more you should be checking if, if not agreeing with me is really that bad of a thing. Should I break with brothers or sisters because of this? Even if it makes me feel good, is it right? And certainly innocent here can't mean that you don't know what evil is. We are to recognize it, so we are to know it. But we are not to experience it. We're not to live it out. This is exactly what kind of happens in Adam and Eve. So the only way that Adam and Eve can truly understand what is good and what is evil is by experiencing what is good and what is evil. They don't have a knowledge outside of experiencing it by taking the apple themselves or peach, as it were. And so when they do that, they have not only now a mental understanding of what it means to defile the Lord or to defy the Lord, but they now have an experience of what that means. What Paul is getting at is you can now, because the Lord has forgiven you, because you have experienced what that is and God has freed you from it, you can now know what it is, but not experience it. And that is exactly how you are to live knowing the very thing that is evil, but to be innocent of it. Then he says something very surprising, connected, I think, to Adam and Eve in verse 20. Two things in verse 20 stand out to me that we'll talk about briefly. First, he said, the whole verse is, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. It's surprising, there's three things, I guess, now that I think about it. Surprising, one, that that, that just ratchets up really quickly. That kind of comes out of nowhere, and, and all of a sudden, Paul is talking on a cosmic scale of the great things that are happening here when he was just talking about church divisions before then. But he, he makes it very clear, this is a monumental thing. The other two things, I think, that are really interesting about this is, one, that he specifically mentions God as a God of peace and then mentions God crushing heads because he knows that the only way that his people can ever truly have peace, the only way his people can ever truly be at, at comfort with one another and fullness of joy is to have Satan done with and over. There is no reconciliation with him. He must be destroyed. We find this promise, the beginning of it, 
back in Genesis 3.15 as God is talking to Adam and Eve and the snake and the snake has led them astray and they have experienced evil, they have done evil, they now have a knowledge of evil and God looks at the snake and he says, you know what, her seed will always be at enmity with you and you will bite his heel and he will bruise your head. And then we have these pictures of this happening in, in, in sort of microcosm as you go throughout the Old Testament. You've got Jael putting the tent peg through Sisera's head. You've got David cutting off Goliath's head. The interesting thing about all of those incidents, though, is that they were all individuals, all acting on their own, doing their own thing, even if they were doing it against the enemy of the Lord for the people of God. The armies of the Lord stood there and watched David do it. But Paul uses a very unique word here. Notice what he says. He doesn't say, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under Jesus' feet. He says, he'll crush him under your feet. We are better off than the armies that simply get to watch as others participate in that. We take part in the crushing of Satan. We take part as we maintain the faith that has been handed to us. We take part when we uphold the goodness of what the Lord Jesus Christ has done for us. We take part when we don't give in to the world and its demands, when we don't give in to our failures of faith, but we instead come back in repentance and pry on the goodness of Jesus Christ to give us more faith, to help, to give us aid and comfort. We overcome him, we conquer him by faith so that by our redeemed lives and good confession, we are more than just conquerors. We are head crushers. Now, it's clear that we're not doing this on our own. It is God who is doing this, but God is doing it through us and with us. So friends, in all of this, this promise that comes to us means that we ought to be assured of these things. Hold fast to what Scripture says. Do not put an obstacle or any sort of stumbling in front of other peoples that are, that are completely and utterly unnecessary and specifically do not do it to the body of Crossway who is here. We shouldn't want to do that to anybody else, but life out there is very difficult and it gets very hard to understand how we ought to handle ourselves out there. So right now, right here, be really very closely watching your words and how you speak and how you act so that you are not creating any divisions within the body of Crossway and the body of believers that God has put here. And all of that gives way to worship. The third thing that we ought to be concerned with here is worship. As Paul leads into his doxology, we are to be strengthened according to this gospel of Paul. He is able to strengthen us. We need to be strengthened because we are weak. And one of the things that this whole doxology is meant to do is to show us how weak we are and how much God is here to help us with our weakness. We are weak, but the gospel helps us. The gospel strengthens us to stand up to Satan because it gives us assurance in Jesus Christ. The very idea that we ourselves are weak and deserving of damnation, we are deserving condemnation from God, but yet Jesus Christ stood in our place. He was the one who gave an atoning sacrifice to God. He was the one who was victorious over our enemy. He is the one who has come alongside us and picked us up out of our own grave and put us on our two feet and allowed us to walk in life again. All of this, all of it, is then relayed to how much we need the Lord to work in these things. That gospel comes to us by the preaching of Christ. 
We don't come to Jesus, but Jesus has come to every single one of us, even if that is through the preaching of the word or the preaching of somebody else that has come before us. The word of the Lord is preached to us and we repent and believe. But even the word of the Lord coming to us is not enough because it's not enough to just stand up in front of people and say, there was a guy who was named Jesus a long time ago. He died and he lived again. So, yeah, salvation. We need to have that explained. Paul goes on to say this, that this preaching of Christ is according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations. That is, the import of the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ has been given to us. It's been prefaced by the Old Testament and explained in the New Testament. What does it mean that Jesus has died for us? Well, we've got a lot of sacrifices in the Old Testament that help to explain what Jesus dying does for us. We have a lot of explanations of how kings are to live their lives for the good of their people, which is what Jesus does for us. We have a lot of explanations of what wise and good living is meant to look like, which is what Jesus does for us. The New Testament continues to explain how Jesus' death and his resurrection are indeed the very things that we need to be saved. So it's not just that we need Jesus and his name to be given to us, but we need it to be explained because we're too stupid to figure it out on our own. We wouldn't understand the symbols. We don't understand what's being said. And it might seem like, well, I, I get that. I've gotten that for a long time, but you've got it because it's been explained to you. That's the point. It's been revealed. The mystery of the cross has been revealed to us. But even in that, even in that, God has not only given you the gospel and explained the gospel to you, but even your response to it is by the very command of God. This has been made known to all nations according to the command of the eternal God with the result or with the purpose to bring about the obedience of faith. God has commanded that the name of Jesus Christ and the work that he has done been given to all of the nations so that he can save you. There is nothing here that you are doing on your own. It doesn't mean that you don't have responsibility. It doesn't mean that you don't need to believe. It doesn't mean that you don't need to work for your sanctification or anything like that. It does mean that in the end, salvation belongs to the Lord. And he is great and magnificent to give it to us. It's a gift. It is an utterly inexpressible gift. It is freely, wondrously given to us by God. Faith and love and hope and peace, forgiveness and freedom and joy given to you because God saved you. None of it was earned by you. None of it was due to you. God just freely did that. He sent his son to take on human flesh, to live an obedient life that you didn't live, to die a death that you should have died but didn't die so that he might give you life that you didn't deserve. All of it is a gift. And he didn't rely upon you to figure it out because he loves you too much to watch you stumble through. And so he reveals it to you and he gives it to you. And it's only when you've truly understood that, only then, not just understood it mentally, because it's, it's not like that's a terribly hard concept to get down mentally. Not just when you understand it mentally, but when you have truly understood it and felt the truth of what God has done for you. Only then will you truly know what it means to worship.
God. That's what Paul is trying continuously to get across to people. This is a God who deserves your worship and your praise. So as we come to the end of the book of Romans, it's my sincere hope that you are better acquainted with Jesus because of it. That through this gospel, you're more desirous of the presence of Jesus. You know better your need for him. You're more thankful for the gift of salvation that he has given to you. You're more passionate about his gospel. You're more loving toward his people, and you're even more kind to those who would be considered enemies of the cross. And you can read through the book of Romans and try and figure out why exactly Paul said everything that he said. No, I'm not sure that we know. It was clearly written for him to get some folks to help him and support him as he goes on to Spain, but that doesn't make sense of every single thing that he mentions. In the end, we don't know the ins and outs of Paul's initial impetus for writing this thing, but we can see the purpose of his writing it. Simply to magnify the glory of God through Jesus Christ. And I earnestly hope that in our time over the past year or so, thinking and praying and studying and applying these things to our lives has led you to do that, both in your private life and in our time together, to magnify the glory of God through the work of Jesus Christ. For Christ has come for that very purpose, to show us the glory of the Father by the power of the Holy Spirit, that we may all be one just as he is one. So, to the only wise God, be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. Let us pray. Father, we are grateful that you have chosen through the working of your spirit to give us the revelation of your son, Jesus Christ, in the book of Romans. Help us to see the glory of his work for us, the magnitude of your love for us in him, and the power of the spirit that dwells in us. Be glorified in your people. May your love for all in Christ be proclaimed, and may your people forever be changed into the image of your son. We pray and ask these things in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, for our good and for his glory. Amen.